The views and opinions expressed on this show belong solely to the hosts and their guests and do not reflect the views of any outside institutions unless explicitly stated. What's up, everyone? My name is Steve Vandewall, and I'm the host of Cannabis Cum Laude, a podcast devoted entirely to cannabis. This podcast will cover a full spectrum of topics, including cultivation, business, medicine, politics, culture, advocacy, and everything in between. Because let's face it, the cannabis industry is very complicated. It's robust, and it has a ton of moving parts. So it's going to be my job to help you understand it a little bit better. So tune in every week for a brand new episode. And if you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show. And if you really, really, really like the show and are interested in sponsoring, please shoot me an email at logistics at cannabiscumlaude.com. Now enjoy the show. All righty. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the second segment of this special edition of Cannabis Cum Laude. I'm here with my friend, Greg Procton, uh, who's a CPA and a CMA and um, has been really helping me navigate my license um, for my micro business and has just been a, a, a huge asset and to me transition into the legal market. This second portion of this podcast, you know, if you go back to the first episode, it was a lot of historical context, a lot of um, 280E and what the industry looks like as a schedule one drug. And we really started to talk about next year and what happens if this now becomes a schedule three um, and 280 is uh, goes away and how the industry will change. This segment is really going to be focused on educating investors, right? So all you investors who are interested who are seeking information on how to, how to get into the industry, this is going to be really targeted at you. We're going to talk about some op- opportunities that exist for investors, how to structure different types of deals. Um, what are some threats that investors might um, face in terms of their investment um, things to look at, you know, if you're an investor, the business type, the, you know, doing your due diligence with who's the founder, who's the team, what does their business plan look like? You know, what really doing your due diligence, um, and we're going to get right into it. So Greg, we talked a little bit about this, uh, last episode, um, and in the break, but I really want to understand, you know, part of, for my personal gain too, is what opportunities exist for investors when it comes to different funding apparatuses, apparati? Yeah. Yeah. Apparatus? Yes. <laughs> yes. Opportunities. Opportunities. Yes. Funding yes. opportunities, whether that's loans, whether that's equity, whether that's loan equity hybrid. So kind of walk me through in you in your eyes, what opportunities currently exist for investors looking to enter the cannabis industry? Absolutely. Now, loans loans are a great vehicle for folks. They're from an investor perspective, the rate of return is going to be higher than generally what they see in the marketplace, just because it's a little bit riskier. But again, that gets back to our conversation. It's risky today, riskier today, which you can mitigate, which we'll get into that. A year from now, it's a whole lot less risky. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, if you get in now, your rate of return is going to be a lot higher because again, the supply and demand thing we discussed. Loans are great for a licensee because yes, it's a little more expensive, but at the end of the day, they're not giving up 
any skin in the game. They they have control, they have their equity piece, they're good to go. From an investor perspective, that's kind of the downside. You don't have the equity piece, so when that loan's paid off in five or 10 years, you're done. So you, you have no upside beyond that. But your rate of return is gonna be significantly higher than what you're gonna get in the commercial market right now anyway. Um, from an equity perspective, Equity is a little trickier because then it gets into valuing a business that, quite frankly, there's not a lot of history on the valuation of cannabis businesses. And you're in a market where it's brand new. So every market's different. You could say, well, this is what it was in California or this is what it was in Washington. But the reality is New York's very different. License types are very different. So there's a lot of factors that come into play. So there's negotiation there. But the, the thing with the equity percent is, is an example, say I come in and I invest a million dollars into your business we need to determine what percentage of that business is going to be. I'm going to be part owner. So we have to negotiate that. That generally is built off um, projections that everybody that's getting into the space, anybody that gets into business who do financial projections, they have a perspective of what they're looking at and what's real and what's not. So you'll have projections built and that there'll be a, a, a factor. It might be one times revenue first year revenue, or it might be a percentage of, or a multiplier of EBITDA earnings before in interest, uh, uh, taxes, amortization, depreciation. Um, at the end of the day, you know, any agreement is what two people agree to. So there's no solid framework. Everybody's going to be different. I might come to you say a million dollars and that's exactly what you need. You only want to deal with one investor. You're willing to give up 49%. Whereas somebody else might say, no, a million dollars that's not, that's worth 20%. And you get in this back and forth on it from an investor's perspective, it comes down. There's a lot more due diligence involved. If you're going to be an equity owner, there's a lot more that comes into play, including what the corporate structure is that we kind of touched on. You know, if you're an LLC as an investor, you need to be concerned of a number of things that come with that. Um, if there's the operating agreement provides for distributions that are going to cover your tax liability, because anything that flow, everything's going to flow through to you in a K one, um, if the problem again with the LLC, um, or a problem with the LLC is that if there's a 280E audit and there's significant findings, it flows through to the investors. So there's a lot more risk with an LLC or a partnership. Um, it's often suggested, and I suggest it to my clients, if you're an LLC, you can elect to be treated as a C-Corp. That protects the investors from an audit trickling down to them. And there's other benefits we can get into later if you'd like. Mm -hmm. And then the third option is kind of a loan equity hybrid where maybe I come in and say, Steve, I'm going to loan you a million dollars. I want to pay it back at market rate, whatever that is, you know, prime, prime plus two, whatever, something that's least beneficial to you, but not egregious like a straight loan would be. Yep. That loan will be paid off in five to 10 years. And I'm going to, as part of that deal, I want to keep 20% of the business or 10% of the business or whatever the percent works out to be, whatever you guys agree to. So the benefit to the investor is I'm getting market rate on my money that I would get investing anywhere else, you know, conservatively. And I'm also, I also am tied into the upside of this. So, and the, the, it's like playing with house money, right? I get my money back and then I have skin in the game. And, you know, if we have an exit plan in five years and we sell the business, then I get my percentage or I just get a percentage of distributions or dividends every year. The benefit to the licensee is it's cheaper money now and it's a smaller percentage of the business you're giving up. So again, at the end of the day, it is what two people agree to, or groups of people, depending what the ownership structure is like, that are comfortable for both. Um, 
again, from a, from a licensee perspective, the loan is the best option because it's a short-term pain, long-term gain. From an investor perspective, the best option is equity. And then the hybrid's kind of the best of both worlds for both. That's really interesting because that's been something that I've been dealing with right now. That's kind of my task at hand is, okay, the real estate has been secured. The licenses or the application has been submitted. Design plans are in place, blah, blah, blah. Now it's, okay, we got to raise the capital. And A, it's a tough thing to do because, you know, in a lot of, you know, people like myself and in my shoes are trying to put a valuation on a, uh, a, a pre-market business and a brand, which is not impossible, but it's, you know, it's not as easy as like if you were about to invest in a, you know, traditional LLC business or a product business, whatever it is, it's very different. Um, so, you know, for me, just for example, you know, even everything is really in this business is uh, in this stage of the game is based on contingencies, right? And the contingency is do I get the license or not? And if I get the license, when am I going to get it, right? Mm -hmm. Just for example, you know, I just submitted my um, application in the first 30 days of that priority window. And part of that was you had to have secured real estate. Now, I didn't own a building, so I was looking to lease. And I knew that I wanted the building now, but I really only, I really only wanted to pay for it at the very least pay full price if I, was, if I got a license and I could generate revenue out of it. So we actually went through, and I know a couple of other people who structured similar type of deals, and this all, again, comes down to the landlord. Like these deal, There is no cookie-cutter way to do any of this. You don't Google how to invest in a cannabis business. How to, there is no cookie-cutter. It is Wild West. If you thought the, you know, this is true Wild West, we're kind of making it up and trailblazing as we go. So one thing that we did was create essentially two separate lease agreements, a pre-licensed lease agreement and a post-licensed lease agreement. The pre-lease agreement essentially says, I'm going to pay X dollars to keep the lights on and hold the property. I cannot build. I cannot make any capital improvements. I can't do anything. All I can do is hold it. And for, for, for a heavily discounted rate, keep the lights on, taxes, cam charges, et cetera. Once I get that email from the OCM saying, congratulations, you are now a licensed operator, then the post or the licensed lease uh, agreement is executed, which is the standard normal rate of the building. So this was, you know, something that was beneficial for me because I was like, I don't want to pay, you know, 6,000 bucks or whatever it is indefinitely on a building that I literally can't do anything for you. That's how, you know, people you've seen bleed out. But the, the landlord isn't just going to give me a property for free indefinitely. He has to he has to pay money to keep the lights on. So this was a very good, I thought, hybrid, you know, deal that we were able to work out that worked for both of us, and it's currently working great. You know, it's you know we just saw the facility today. I have the keys. You know, I can go in there, tour, vision, you know, envision what I'm going to do. I just can't start building until I get that license. So the same thing goes with fundraising right? There's no, here's my exact value. You know, it's very mu kind of muddy and complicated, right? We've been going back and forth on, do we need two delivery drivers or three? And what are their hours going to be? And can, are people going to deliver and also work in the cult? There are so, there's a million scenarios that we're trying to parse through and create. What is the optimal scenario that's going to be cost effective, but not, we are not going to shoot too far under. So we're screwed when we go live and being able to present this, the problem is a us 
we're professionals. I would consider us experts. It's tough to grasp this stuff as an expert. Then you take all this muddiness and all this complexity and you go to an investor who a lot of them is very cut and dry and say, hey, I want a million for my business, but there's a catch. Here's all this comp- complex stuff. Being able to say, you know, being able to lay this stuff out very um, in an organized, kind of easy to understand um you know, message is, is necessary or else these investors are like, I'm not interested. I'm already making a million dollars a month. Why do I need to dick around with all this cannabis stuff? If instead, if you said, Hey, here's the historical context, let's work out this type of deal, equity, um, loan, hybrid, whatever we want to do. All of a sudden you really can start to get it through to these, uh, these investors. Cause that's what the pro I've seen it. I'm seeing it right now with investors. Um, so I think it's really important to understand that there are a lot of options. While there are a lot of options, there is no SOP on how to do this, right? This is all relationship-based. It's all, you know, my landlord said, sure, I'll do a, a hybrid uh, deal with you until you get the license. And I had four other guys say, oh, you're a cannabis? Kick rocks. I don't even want to talk to you. Or, hey, you're in the cannabis industry? Well, I was going to charge $7 a square foot, but now I'm going to charge you 14 Cause you're in cannabis. So it really all depends on who the conversation you're having, your, your, wh- who you are having the conversation with, what type of investor they are and being able to bring to them these different types of options to say, Hey, here's this complex situation, but here's three different options that we can work together. Are you interested? And more often than not, you're going to get another meeting out of it. So I do appreciate you sharing that. This is all This is all stuff that, you know, you've been teaching me along the way that as an entrepreneur and not an accountant, this is extremely valuable to me because capital raising in and of itself is tough. Capital raising in this environment is very, very tough. So I appreciate you kind of breaking down the loan versus equity versus loan equity hybrid, because the good news is, is chances are, if you work hard enough, you will find an option and the right person to invest in your business, but it's going to take a little bit of, uh, of groundwork to do it. Well, and, and to your point, and kudos to you and your landlord working out a deal that was a win-win for both of you right now, right? Doing a hybrid, doing improvising, right? Thinking yep. on your feet so that everybody walks away and that is feeling happy, you know? Um, just the three I laid out, the three ideas, that doesn't mean those are the only three. At the end of the day, yep. it can be Truly, anything that you guys agree, two people agree to can be sufficient. Make sure it's in writing, make sure it's well-documented, that it covers all the caveats. But I'm sure there's a myriad of other ways that this can get done. You know, they could buy your equipment and lease it back to you. I mean, that could work too. You know, I mean, again, the point of it is to be creative, but for both sides of the coin, for the licensee and for the investor to do their due diligence to make sure that, you know, have your attorneys look at it and make sure it is ironclad for both of you. Yep. So that if he bought, if an investor bought the equipment and leased it back to you, that they can't raise your lease rent on it or take the equipment, you yes. know, that it's truly yours and you're not going to be stuck, you know, coming into an empty building someday. Yeah. And obviously everything in this business and in business in general should be done through an attorney. You know, every, you know, obviously use your legal budgets wisely um, but when it comes down to these deal structuring, make sure you do your due diligence. You have a good attorney, make sure you're, you're, you're look, you're crossing your T's dotting your I's. Um, cause it could come down to a single sentence, which could make you or bury you. Um, I think it's also important to note, especially in this space 
And this is some I've started to have more success with investor interest uh, lately by asking, you know, rather than saying, this is what I want, you know, I want million dollars for this percent or whatever. And said, here's the facts of the business and here's the vision. What would make it worth it for you to invest in my business with the one stipulation be, and this is just me personally, I want to maintain control of the brand, right? What would it make it, you know, Mr. or Mrs. Investor, what would it, what would make it worth it for you to give me what I want? They might say, I want 80%. Okay. Well, I want, you know, this rate of return. I want this right. You don't know. So chance, and you don't ever have to say yes. If they say I want this. Okay. If you, if that doesn't work for you, but more often than not, ask the investor what they want. What would it make it worth it for them to invest in this industry? Higher than average, you know, higher than market rate of return. Okay. Normally this might be a 20% equity investment. Maybe you get 30. I don't know what the answer is. My point is if you're raising capital in a tough market like this, and you have some facts and you have a business plan, you may find yourself getting an A to B faster if you just ask the investor, what do you want? What is going to make it worth it for you? What are your thoughts on that? Well, I, I agree with you 100%. And to take that a step further, before you approach investors, you best have all your ducks in a row. You best have fi financial projections that are complete. The assumptions are very clear. Uh, have a pitch deck. Have your professional team in place. Have your management team in place. Because those are all things. Think about it. If, if somebody came to you and said, I want you to invest your home into a project and you could lose your home if, if it didn't work out, what are the questions you're going to ask? You're not going to trust. You may feel you're the most trustworthy person in the world, but they, this investor doesn't know you. Yeah. You know, They need to see it all on paper and they need to vet every one of your assumptions. They need to vet all your people to make sure that what is the true risk? You know, And again, I think it's a, it goes without saying, but the reality is if you go to an investor and you have a full set of projections and you have a, a beautiful pitch deck and everything is just lined up and clear and it's very professional and it makes sense, you're going to have a, have a lot better chance that they're going to say, Definitely. let's have a conversation. But if you just go to somebody, I'm doing, yeah, I'm opening a dispensary and here's a single sheet that tells you everything. I hope to God the investor does invest in you because you don't, you're not ready. Right. Well, and, and let's be very honest about something is like, no matter, you know, I consider myself a professional. I consider myself a, a seasoned business person. I have a master's degree. I check a lot of boxes. When I go to an investor and say, I want to sell weed and I want you to invest, they <laughs> still look at you like you're a criminal. So you're already have that working against you. So if you are not, if you go in there, I want to, I want to grow some weed and sell it. If you need to go in there have everything soup to nuts, details, projections, like our, you know, our deck that we put together is very thorough, very intricate, very detailed, but also you need, you know, I was just telling you the other day, um, I, I had a meeting with an investor and at first he, you know, I called to ask him, Hey, are you interested in investing in this business? No, I, I have a lot of other projects going on. It's just not my thing. I said, okay. I ended up seeing him about a week later and just want, I started, you know, just educating him, not even pitching, just saying, this is what's happening. He's like, how's the whole license thing going and financing? And I said, well, this, this, and this. And then he starts asking, okay, so what exactly do you need? What are you going to be doing in here? Well, I'm going to be building three cultivation rooms on, of equal size. This is the equipment that I'm going to need. This is the weight in the, this is what I'm going to expect to produce. This is what that comes out to in uh, revenue. Okay. Interesting. Now, what exactly do you need for equipment? 
I need 10 tons of AC per room. I need uh, 12 to 16 lights per room, this much dehumidification, this many tables, this many fans. Okay. What do you need for employees? So not only should you have a business plan, but you need to also understand the meat and potatoes of that business plan. Because if you show up and you get a meeting and somebody's asking questions and you're like, uh, well, I'm not sure. You're gone. You lost your shot. So you need to take the time, have a great deck, have a pitch. No investor is going to sit here and they don't want, I've had this happen to me. I start going on my, my tirades and 280E and you just see them lose it. Go in there with a pitch deck, go in there with a, a very concise, you know, investors, they want to know the returns, right? They don't care if you got the best genetics. Mm-hmm. They don't care that, they don't care about any of that, right? I've been through that. They don't care that you're getting HLG lights. They don't care that you got fancy brochures. How much money am I going to make on this deal? What am I going to make on my dollar? And if you're not able to tell them that, forget about it. Yep. So be prepared from start to finish. And it's a numbers game, baby. You're going to have to probably sit down and hear no from 100 investors before you get a meeting. But I promise you, and I'm no different than anybody else. I'm just a persistent motherfucker. Get in front of as many people as you can. Refine your pitch. Continue. We've, we, how many versions of the business plan we've been through? I've lost track. Lost, tra- <laughs> lost track. Every day I'm, we're going back and forth. Oh shit, we didn't think about this. Have you thought about this? Refine, refine, refine. Because what you start with, it may be very different than what you finish with. Consistently revise or refine your deck, refine your pitch, and get out there and hit the streets and talk to people. And I'm telling you, people, it's an odds game. Right? You shoot, you'll miss 100% of the shots you don't take. So I'm going to get off my soapbox now, but just from somebody who has done it and I'm literally doing it right now, I'm raising capital for a licensed cannabis business. Even if you got the best business, even if you say, Hey, I've been making this much money. I have SOPs. I have a team. I have equipment. I have everything. If you can't, if you can't pitch that in a clear and concise manner, you're just going to be another, another drug dealer to them. That's the truth. Well, and and that's an important point. It's the education of it. And you can't, you can't assume the person you're pitching to. If I'm, if I'm going to investors and I'm going to pitch a restaurant or I'm going to pitch a manufacturer, people understand what that is and they're already receptive to it, right? If I'm pitching a dispensary, you have to assume they already have the preconceptions that we talked about in the history. You need to go back and kind of educate them and, and treat it as though they are anti-cannabis and just kind of educate them on where the history brought to this point and also understand your market. If you're opening in a small community of 2,000 people and you're projecting 15 million in sales, you best understand and be able to explain where the hell 15 million in sales is going to come from. You know, if you're, you know, in a border town with um, Erie PA as an example, and you're going to get a lot of cross-state traffic, that may rationalize it. But if you're in a border town of PA of, oh, I don't know, Bradford PA, you're not going to get that traffic. And an investor is going to see through that. So you have to be realistic. It's exciting to think what these numbers could be, but you have to drill down to the the true demographics that there's X number of people in the community, X percentage use cannabis in some form or another. And roughly that's what the numbers are. The average spend a year, break it down in detail and be able yeah. to explain that because it, the minute an investor looks at something and say, Oh, I'm going to pay you 20, you know, you're going to get a 20% return on your investment. We're going to do 15 million a year. An educated investor is going to dig deeper and they're going to say, it's a joke. I, you know, you just walk. I don't believe your number. So it's more than just telling them an impressive number. It's really making sure it's realistic and it can be supported in your business plan. 
that the community can support it in terms of numbers. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, even leaning, you know, it's kind of that fine line between, you know, you want to value the business at a high number so you can get, you know, a preferential, you know, equity, you know, share for the investment without bleeding yourself out. But you also want to be, you know, we've been a bit conservative in our numbers. I think some of them, um, because at the end of the day, it's like, I've seen so many people do this. Okay. I have 10,000 square feet. I can fit this many plants. I can turn it over this many times a year, this many pounds times three or $4,000 a pound, which you're not going to get. Um, I can make $5 million a year. Easy. Okay. Like that's great. But your business is in delivery. You sell eights and ounces. Do you have the delivery? Do you have the clientele to sell 10,000 eights a week? If you do, sweet. That would be awesome, right? You probably don't though. Um, so you're absolutely right. You need to be really realistic with your numbers and be able to justify it with like, okay, there's 25,000 people in this town. On average, 25% of customers use cannabis. We're going to say that half of them shop with us once a week. Like be granular in your assumptions because even if you're conservative, you're overly conservative, the best case scenario, you say, wow, we are projected at 5 million this year and we hit seven. Good job, Steve. You know, but nobody wants to say we're going to hit 10 million year one. And after 5 million, you're like, Hey, what the fuck? Yeah. You were, you're way off, you know? So it's, it's, it's very important. This isn't just cannabis. This is any, any business like be as detailed and granular and realistic with your assumptions and your sales data. Um, it'll only, it'll only benefit you in the end. Well, and I agree. And I've, I've had a, a couple of clients that I've had to sit down and say, they'd give, they'd say, well, we know we're going to do X million in sales a year. Okay. What's the square footage of the store? How many point of sales are you going to have? Okay. That means you're going to serve each bud tender is going to serve 62 customers an hour. So are you really going to be able to turn a customer every 45 seconds? It's just not going to happen. And they go, well, I didn't, I didn't think about it like that. So to your point, it's got to be granular. It's boring. It's not glamorous. But if you you drill down and say, okay, the average butt tender can take care of a customer every six minutes, so they can do up to ten customers an hour, and kind of break it out that the average basket size is ninety five bucks, yep. and it gets a lot. If you build from the ground up, it's a lot clearer, of, more realistic of what you can do because then you can back into the butt tender hours, which is your biggest cost is payroll besides the cost of goods, and it's just more defensible. Yeah. And I also think, you know, and I used to be guilty of this is bigger does not mean better in this situation. Um, you know, you, I really originally wanted to, when I got my micro business, like, okay, I'm capped at 3,500 square feet. Let's max it out and sell all the weed. Okay. That would be great. If I could sell three 24 light rooms, you know, that's like eight, that's 12 pulls a year and eights and ounces. We'd all be rich for two lifetimes. Right. You also could run into, okay, that's an extreme, that's a, a high amount of equipment to stock three rooms right off the bat. You're looking at like, I don't know, 150, 200,000 per room. And then what happens if you don't sell it all? Look at all these farmers who had no outlets. The only thing worse, you know, it, bad than bad weed is good weed that's not selling. It's just a waste. So you have, you know, I'm a big proponent of starting small. And if you're worse the biggest problem that you have is you sell out all of your products. Great. Cause the last thing you want to be doing is like, yeah, I grew 80 pounds of this amazing strain. I got 10,000 jars of edibles sitting there. 
Well, guess what? Every day that they're not being sold, they're just losing you money. So if instead of, you know, for me, originally started, we were going to start with like 60 lights in the facility. No, no, no. We're going to start with, we're going to start with 36. And if the worst case, we're, hell, even 24. And what happens? I sell everything. And maybe, we're, you know, sorry, we're, we're, we're out of product until the next. Yeah, that's, that sucks. But if you can sell all your products and you can make some cash, then you can say, now we're going to buy a couple more lights for this room a couple more lights for that room. Now we're going to buy another uh, 100 gummy trays or another chocolate uh, machine or whatever that is. So, you know, I always, as nice as it is to, to get out in front and say, we're out front, we got a massive facility, we're going to sell 10,000 eights here, we're going to have all this equipment. That's a li- lot of liability. Um, you're going to have to raise a fuck ton of money to, to, to really build that out. Start small and work up. It doesn't have to be start small and move into another facility. It can be start with two rooms. And then, you know, like we're playing, I'm going to start with a couple rooms and only equip half of them. And then when I'm at the point where I'm comfortable to justify, okay, now we need to fully, you know, add the rest of the lights, the dehumidification, the irrigation, then we'll, we'll, we'll increase from there. Okay. We've grown out of those two rooms. Now we're going to add a third room. So by the time that I've hit that, by the time that I maxed out at 3,500 square feet, I can go to the state and say, I've been in this for three to four years. This is how we started. We're now busting out the seams of 3,500 square feet. I would love your permission to scale. You know, and the state has even said that if people are maxing out these, these facilities and these square footage requirements, they'll work with them to scale. You know, everybody wants a small business to turn into a big business. But if you come right out off the gate, right out of the gate in this high risk industry, trying to be a big business, that could have big failures and a lot of money loss. So, you know, long story short, entrepreneurs out there, especially if you're looking at micros and you're looking, you know, you're in a similar situation to me where, you know, you have a good business and a good business plan and a small team, but not endless capital. You can always get bigger. You know, start small, start where that's manageable and work up incrementally. Um, Because if you throw everything at it at once and it fails, it's going to be hard to recover from, you know? So, yeah, I would, I would agree. And, you know, one, one point to make to licensees and it applies to investors as well. When you're meeting with an investor or you're an investor meeting with a licensee, it's, it's a marriage of sorts. And the reality is if you have any doubts, you know, it's, if you're the licensee, you're there. Might be a sense of desperation that you have to have to sign an agreement. You you may be you may find that it's not lucrative in any way. They want forty nine percent of the business, and it's a loan situation, and it's just ugly, and they want control. Like I said, it's like a marriage. If you have any doubts, don't do it. Yeah, because it it's only going to get worse. So it's important that as much as the investor is in interviewing you, you need to interview the investor to make sure that it's a good fit. Because you don't want somebody that's in your shorts every day going, well, we should have done $100,000 in business today and you did 50. Why? You know, why aren't you hitting these metrics? Why Why this? Why that? You know, you have to have a good working relationship or rapport. Otherwise, it, it's just going to be a nightmare. And, you know, there's a lot of lawsuits in the space because people just jump into it because people are eager to throw money at it. And they don't do their due diligence yeah. and it fails. Yeah. And I think in, in this you know, some people may not agree with this. And again, this all comes based on, you know, the preference of the business owner entrepreneur is for me, I'm looking for an investor that obviously, you know, obviously has cash, but that I can learn from or can some bring other value to the business. You know, maybe you're a real estate developer or, or, and you understand all the, 
you know, you have uh, relationships with contractors and HVAC people and you understand the tax law and you have, you know, deep pockets and connections and all that. Like that's something for me that would be really valuable. Um, same, you know, so for me in this, like I said, this is not, this is just my personal preference, but if you find investor, you know, I, I want to be in control of the day-to-day operations, but I also know that I'm only 33 and there's, I, there's so many people out there that have lifetimes more of a business experience than me. I'd love to have somebody who has, you know, is a multimillionaire, have, has a lot of success in business, has been there, done that, been through the trenches that I can say, Hey, you know, not only are you giving me cash, but can I, I need some mentorship. Like I need some, I need help with this. Um, so I think, like you said, you know, make sure just as much as investors are vetting their licensees, make sure if you're a licensee and entrepreneur, you're also vetting your investors because just because does somebody might give you a lot of money doesn't mean that they're a good fit for your operation. Yeah. 100%, 100%. So I want to talk a little bit about, you know, maybe we do a little role playing, um, I want to know if we're an inve- you're an investor and I'm an applicant and we're sitting in a room getting to know each other. What are the types of things that you're going to ask me to see if, you know, this is even, what types of things are important questions for event for there's always, you know, as standard investment, there's always going to be the basic questions, right? But as it relates to cannabis specifically, are there any specific questions or things that investors should be considering or asking these entrepreneurs before they, you know, start to move forward together? Um, Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I I think one of the most basic things that an investor should understand is, and that a licensee should be aware of, is entity structure. We kind of talked about it before, but the reality is, Investor needs protection. And in a space that you're almost guaranteed, virtually guaranteed to be audited at some point in time, they want protection from a trickle-down effect. So they want to make sure, you know, if you're treated as a C-corp is ideal. And there's other reasons for that. It preserves cash. The tax rate's a little bit lower right now. Um, versus, you know, an S-corp, which is not advised, or an LLC or a partnership where that, that tax liability goes to you personally. Um, an investor's not going to want that because what happens if, even if it's in your operating agreement, which it should be, but there's that risk that if you don't make the distribution to me because cash is tight for some reason, I, as an investor, am going to have to pay maybe my effective tax rate 30%, and I get a K-1 that tells me my share of income is $500,000. I'm going to have to pay $150,000 in taxes out of pocket that I may not have. So they're going to want to know corporate structure is uh, securing them. The other thing is, they're going to want to know your management team. You know, investor that only cares about you could be problematic. You should really arrange for them if kind of a second phase of the interview process is they should meet your management team. Because if I'm an investor, I'm going to want to know, yeah, Steve, I think you're awesome. You know, I, I think you're really on top of it, but the reality is you may have whatever cluster mucks that are working for you that are just, you know, can't see straight, don't care. They're more used. They're, they're more, looking forward to being able to use the product than they are working in the shop. And that happens and it's happened historically. Um, so I'm going to want to know your management team is just as competent that I can trust your management team. I'm also going to want to know who your professional advisors are. I'm going to want to know that your professional advisors are, have been in the space. They understand the space, you know, whether it's your attorneys, whether it's your accountant, whether it's your, you know, your tax preparers, whoever it is, making sure that, you know, I'm going to vet them to know that, okay, they've been doing it for a few years. I've talked to them. I'm comfortable with them. So 
that team might insulate your management team. The other thing is, um, you know, worried about prior sins, right? I want to know that you don't have something's not sitting out there that I don't know about. Now you're the licensee, the state probably did all the vetting. So chances are you're fine, but I'm going to want to know that about your management team as well. Right. I'm going to want to know that you don't have, and I'm not disparaging to anybody, everybody's got their own story, but the reality is if you have somebody that is a felon because they've embezzled most of their life, um, I don't know that I'd be comfortable with that because they're probably going to walk with product or they're going to walk with cash. You know, at least I'm going to assume that. So I'm going to want to dig deeper into your management team for those type of things. Right. Um, if, if you've been operational more so for, well, it's even out Northeast as well for, if you're an operational enterprise and you're trying to get an investor, I'm going to want to look at prior tax returns. I'm going to want to look at prior audit reports to see, well, how did you resolve those issues? Are there any outstanding issues? Um, Again, uh, SOPs, if you're an existing entity, do you have SOPs in place? Can I see your SOPs? Let me see how you're handling controlling cash, how you're controlling inventory, how you're making sure stuff's not walking. And if you're a startup, I'm going to want to know you understand what those are, and I'm going to want to look and see what your policies and procedures are going to be. I mean, it's it seems like a lot of work for a licensee to have to go through all this, but it's a lot of money. And if I'm an investor and if an investor's not asking you these things, it just means you're going to hit with something else down the road. So be prepared to provide those things, provide management, your management team's bios, what their history is. If there's any hidden gems and that you don't want them to know about, you should probably just let them know up front. Um, same with your management team, give them the resumes of your, or not your management team, your, your professional advisors, give them links to their background to see just so they have all the information. It goes to the point, have all, all that information, your full disclosure. So you're not hiding anything. So if you give them everything, the investor is going to say, okay, this person knows what they're doing. They know how to present. They know what I'm looking for. And from an investor's perspective, if they are interested, they really need to talk to people in the space. You know, again, it's the same thing for them as it is anybody else. Talk to an attorney that's already in the space, talk to an accountant that's already in the space, learn as much as you can ask as many questions. If you don't already know those things, have those conversations, reach out to me or any other professional in the space. They're happy to have the conversation so that you can, you know what questions to ask and, and above all else, do your due diligence, go through all those things, you, all those conversations you need to have with the licensee to build your comfort level. Cause again, if you know, if you have a conversation with the licensee and it's not somebody that you would hire personally, you should not invest in them. You know, you need to have that rapport that you trust them and you, you would hire them if you had the opportunity for any business. <clears throat> and what I tell everybody in any relationship and any decision, if it's not a hell yes, it's a hell no by default. You know, you got to be excited about that decision. Yeah. If you're not excited about that opportunity, you shouldn't invest. And the same thing holds true for the licensee. If you're not excited about that investor yeah. and you start, well, yeah, they're a little narcissistic, but I can get over that or geez, they don't get back to me timely, but I can get over that. If you start rationalizing it like any relationship, yeah. it's going to fail. So, and you and I, you know, dealt with that early on, you know, when yeah. we were first putting the, and, and nothing against uh, that investment group, but, you know, kind of had a feeling that, you know, you get tied up and, wow, somebody is listening to me and they want to give me money, but uh, there's all these boxes that are unchecked. And it's like, you have to be able to take yourself out of that situation for a second and be like, okay, objectively speaking, like what you, go with your gut. You know, I was, I was trying to be super rational about it 
and be like, oh, you know, they didn't get back to me or they're hemming and hawing or they want all this equity. They want control. They want 51%, but the money's worth it. And it's like, if it doesn't feel right, it probably isn't. And that goes both ways. Um, you know, and this, you know, for me, Vandy's is my baby. And a lot of other people like me, like, that's your baby. Are you willing to, would you let any, just anybody babysit your kid? No. Well, and that's the other thing. And they, I know you just said it in jest, but the reality is they're not giving you money. They're trading you money for a piece of your skin, for a piece of your baby, as <laughs> twisted as that is. But that's the reality of it. You're giving something up. It's a trade. Yeah. Um, they're not doing you any favors. You're giving, they're getting something in return. They wouldn't do it if they weren't getting something in return. Yeah. So they're not some hero or heroine that's coming to the table. You're giving them an opportunity and they're taking advantage of it. Yeah. So, and they're going to be paid handsomely for it. You know, whether it be an interest rate that is higher than most any other investment opportunity in the market right now on a loan or an equity percentage that in a traditional business would be a lot higher in the cannabis space would be a lot higher than a traditional business. They're going to get their benefits. So don't come from a position of weakness. Come from a position of being on even, even par with this person because you both have something to give. And really it's the same thing. Um, I have a, a client out in New Jersey who was presented with an investment opportunity or from an investor. And I mean, I read the agreement. I, I, it was a piece of, it was a piece of art. I mean, it was brilliant, but it crushed, would crush my client. He would, they would lose control of their business for five years until it was a loan equity combination thing. And they would, after the loan was paid off in five years, they would then regain control of their business. Now, from a percentage perspective, they would still have percentage majority ownership, but from an operational perspective, they gave up all control. So you have to, again, really be careful about what the agreements are and have somebody review that agreement and say, just tell me what's wrong with this. Yeah. You know, what am I missing? Because it's very easy when you're excited, when somebody comes to the table and says, I'm going to loan you, or I'm going to provide you with $2 million or two and a half million, whatever the amount is. That's a lot of money and you get excited. I can get my dreams can come true because I can get this thing off the ground and you're quick to sign. Don't yeah. review, take a day to think about it. Yeah. If other people give some feedback, cause it can be change your whole life it, and not in the best way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, as we get into start wrapping up and I want to get into next steps for investors who are, interested in actively seeking out these opportunities. I want to talk about one thing that we just kind of started coming up in conversation um, that I've been dealing with that I think would be really valuable for both investors and uh, applicants and licensees is this pre-license capital raise, right? The thing that I've had the most trouble with is even when people that are interested be like, it's hard. I don't want to invest unless you have the license, right? And I don't blame you. Because when you say, hey, I want, I need a million bucks, two million bucks, but I'm only going to put it to use if I get the license and that could be tomorrow or it can be in six months and I may not get it at all. That's a, a lot of risk. And a lot of people aren't just going to say, you know what, hang on to it. If you get the license, great. If you don't, just wire it back to me, right? So we were talking about, you know, just yesterday about the possibility of using escrow to mitigate this issue. Um, kind of explain to me what you were explaining to me on, on how exactly that w would work in using an escrow account to secure funds um, 
before the license was actually approved. How does that all work? Well, honestly, I made it up on the spot because I was just trying to come up with a solution because you had asked me the question what to do. I mean, there's a lot of approaches, right? You can have, you know, if in the non-cannabis world, they say you're raising money for a fund, you would get, basically people would express their interest. You would, you would book the fund. Say you're trying to raise a million and you, and you get a million and a half booked. And then people sign that, you know, they're committed to it. In that situation, unless you, it's not necessarily legally binding. So they could walk at the 11th hour. So where that's where your concern was. Somebody walking at the 11th hour that you raise a million and a half or whatever the number is that you end up needing. And you get the license, you're already set to, you know, break ground or break concrete, I guess, in that situation. And you find out, oh, Jane Doe or John Doe walked. What am I going to do? I, I'm a half million short. I'm completely frozen. And then you have all these investors on your back. So what came to mind was the possibility, if they wired you the funds, here's the concern as an investor. I just wired you the money. There's no guarantee. It's your I can't pull that money back. From the licensee perspective, you got a million dollars sitting in your bank account. That's, you know, for some, that may be tempting to go, well, I'm just buying whatever. I'm going to pre-buy the, prepay for these tables that I'm getting or the lights or whatever. And they go buying equipment before they have a license. Well, they don't get the license. What are you going to do with all this equipment? And now this investor saying, where's my million dollars? And now you have 900,000 sitting in there. What are you going to do? It's going to shut you down. So the concept of seems like it, it's certainly feasible is having an escrow account where you have a third party agent that took that money in their possession. It's sad. And you know, any escrow account interest bearing, which would be no virtually no interest these days on a savings account. But in any event, it would sit in a third party's account to be released when that license happens. So from an investor perspective, I know that if you don't get the license, I'm going to get my million dollars back. Yeah. And from the licensee perspective, if I get my license, I know the million dollars is there. There's no, qualms about it yeah but again it comes back to the conversation we had earlier is what two people agree to it's okay so if there's a hybrid beyond that it's it's good too i mean you could you could have an agreement that okay you sign on you're going to commit a million dollars if you back out less than uh, whatever period of time beforehand um, there's a significant penalty because at the very least it should discourage them. It's not going to help making your project happen, yeah. but it's going to discourage them from jumping in. Yeah. Um, I'd be curious to see who out, like what other deals people and creative things people have done out there outside of this conversation. Because like you said, everything's different. We're just scratching the surface. I would love to hear And if you're an entrepreneur or an investor and you're listening to this, shoot Greg or I an email and let us know how you finagled your deal you know what what creative things you know you all have done in this process because we're open we're learning i know i'm learning you know we have some good ideas and stuff that we're implementing but again this is you know all still brand new and there's really no cookie cutter way to do it and if you have something you'd be willing to share with us uh, i'd love to hear about it and, and share it on the show so well as an example what i mentioned briefly earlier it was like the sale leaseback thing where somebody you know investor buys the equipment and leases it back to you so they could have a purchase order with the equipment that you're all set to order and then lease back and then you work out your equity position from there. I mean, again, to your point, there's a million ways to skin this cat. Yeah, what, what makes me nervous about that situation is this, this pre-revenue era in a cannabis license, right? So 
say you get the license today, then you have to break ground on the build out, right? We'll call that six months and that's probably conservative, right? And then say six months after the build out, that's rooms go up, equipment gets purchased, hung, all that irrigation room, the whole nine, right? So then let's say that takes six months. So then it's going to take 14 to 15 weeks. You know, you put the plants in that day. They got a veg for two weeks, flower for nine weeks, two weeks to dry, two weeks to cure. You know, you're looking at 15 weeks from that six month period. That's almost four, that's four months pretty much. So now you're looking at 10 months of, if, especially if you're a flower only business and you're only uh, selling your own products of no revenue. And if you got lease payments on a building, you have lease payments on equipment. My fear is how are you going to pay those? Well, that comes down to the projections and building it in the projections. It's like working on yours, the, the, the cultivation side that it's nine months before you're going to see flower yeah. before you're going to have any sales. Yeah. So that's nine months of expenses that have to be funded and that gets worked into what your initial raise is. Right. So if you're going to have nine months of operating expenses and let's say that's a million dollars, it's a little bit high, but let's say it's a million dollars. You have to build that in your projections as part of your ask from investors. It's not just the capital cost or the equipment cost, or same thing, um, or the working capital or, you know, paying some of your soft costs. It's for deposits and such. It's covering those nine months until you're revenue generating. And the other side of it is, again, there's no cookie cutter way to do this. You may be able to work something out that says, hey, Landlord, maybe my lease payments for this equipment start after my I make my first flower sale or something like that. You know? Well, and then from an equipment perspective, there's that. But from the equipment perspective, too, there's a timing thing, right? I mean, your build out, you said six months, let's say. Well, you're not, you don't have that equipment for six months. That equipment's being installed after six months. So it's not nine months of waiting, having the equipment doing nothing, the tables, the lights, everything else. It's a couple of months. So it's not quite as huge a number, but it's still something that needs to be rolled into what you're looking to, to start up. I mean, it's no difference than any other entity that has, you know, think about a wine business, right? I mean, it's the same concept if, if you're growing good wine. I mean, you're growing the grapes and then you get a harvest and then you, whatever. Yeah. So it's the same thing. You have to build that into your capital infusion in the beginning. Yeah, which we, you know, certainly did in this process. You know, you have to bake well, it in. And yours is a little unique, too, because you have another part of the micro business. You have another angle to that that's not reliant on your cultivation side. True. So that helps. Yeah. Um, so let's wrap up with, um, if you're an investor, what are next steps? If I'm looking to invest right now, I'm looking for that golden goose, that golden opportunity. What are the next steps that I should take or anybody should take as an investor who's looking for this type of opportunity? Uh, education. I mean, reach out to people that are in the space, as I mentioned, you know, go, whether it's LinkedIn's the primary spot, but look at, if you're in New York state, uh, New York cannabis insiders, another entity, find other entities that are involved in the space. Um, and New York Cannabis Connect. I mean, there's a lot of entities out there. Just educate yourself on what you should know about the space. Reach out to folks like myself or, you know, uh, Jeffrey Hoffman, Paula Collins, Rosanna. Uh, reach out to these folks and ask questions. Learn as much as you can so that when you meet with potential uh, investees or licensees that you're asking the right questions and 
It's not a bring me the rock. I need bring me a rock. I need to know. Well, not, not that rock. Bring me a different rock. Um, ask very specific questions. Do the vetting that we talked about. Not only vet the licensee, meet with the licensee, make sure that relationship's good. Meet with their management team. Meet with their professional advisors. You know, get everybody on a Zoom call and just have a conversation. Just do a round robin, introduce and ask questions there. That's probably the most efficient way to do it. Um, and if there's a genuine interest, uh, again, review, 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 due diligence. Go through those things. Make sure the management team's good. Make sure the ownership's good. Make sure they have they know what they're talking about. SOPs are in place. There's no prior sin, so to speak. And then beyond that would be uh, if you have any doubts, don't do it. Another opportunity presents itself. There's a lot of them out there. So if you're really interested in the space and you want to be connected with some businesses that you want to learn more and possibly connect with, mm-hmm. reach out to folks again like myself, you. I mean, there's a lot of people out there that know who's looking for money yeah. and and who's not. So, and again, if it's if you have conversations with people and and you're just not comfortable, don't do it. But I guarantee you, there's going to be there's a lot of a lot of smart, great, trustworthy people in this space. You know, you have to get past as an investor, you have to get past, if you're not already, you have to get past the stigma that's been corresponding to cannabis forever. And I mean, there's people that are regular users of cannabis that still have the same stigma in their mind. It's like, well, I I smoke it, but you know, these other people, you know, whatever, you got to get past that because there are some truly brilliant business people out there and skilled business people and just good human beings that will excel in their space. They just need investment money to make it happen. Yeah. Yeah, it's really, uh, it's as simple as that, I think. I think, um, you know, whether you're an investor, whether you're an applicant, the key is going to be due diligence, seeking the right opportunity, and really, you know, taking the time, most importantly, is to understand the space. This is not, this, you you need to understand the historical context, which is why we set up this this series the way that we did, because without it, you're wondering, well, why do I have all this tax liability? Why can't I go to a bank? Like, why is this so complicated? What is 280E? If you don't understand why all of this is complicated and where it's headed, you're not going to be able to be an effective investor and you're certainly not going to be an effective licensee. So um, I think just like the root of everything else in life, the more you know, the more you grow. Um, education is really key in this space. Um even if you're the most seasoned investor and you're worth millions and millions of dollars, if you haven't ever invested in cannabis, you're, you need, you need to, to, to do your due diligence because this is not like any other industry. This is a wild animal, um, but it's a really good opportunity. I think a lot of the time we talk about some of the, the scary stuff, the 280E, the tax audits, the, you know, the, the, the crazy deal structures, all the crazy things that, you have to jump through the hoops that you jump through to make this get a business off the ground. But if you can do it, which you can, and it's not for everybody, you know, probably for every hundred people that try five will succeed. But if you're one of those five, you're going to do really, really well. You know, it's just going to be a matter of how much pressure can you take? How much are you willing to take this to distance and educate yourself and find the right people to make that dream come true? You know, and I, I'm speaking to all entrepreneurs, um, you know, you and I have been friends for a few years now, carried the same tune, had the same goal. 
And there's a lot of other Steves out there who are doing the same thing. And I'm telling you, at the end of the day, persistence will take you to the freaking top. You don't got to be a genius. You don't got to be come from deep pockets or have any other advances in life. You just got to want it and you got to be hungry and you cannot be afraid to, to fail because you're going to fail a thousand times. You're going to hear no 2000 times. Um, but if you want it bad enough and you're willing to take the distance, the juice is worth the squeeze. I promise you that. Yeah. I don't know that I like your five out of a hundred succeeding, but that is, I guess that is true in the small business world. The, from a cannabis perspective from in New York and New Jersey and soon to be Ohio is legal now, but once they get rolling that, you know, if you're first to market and you do your homework and you understand the market and where you're, you're locating your store, it's, it's almost, I don't want to say it's impossible to fail, but it's almost hard to fail because there's so few stores. So few businesses. And if you're a cultivator, it's a, it's a different beast for those folks right now because everything going on, same with the processors, um, their life isn't really going to change until there's a lot more dispensaries online. Um, and again, from the point of the investors kind of bring this full circle is why it's such a, it is the opportunity to invest right now. Strike while the iron's hot. The expectation is it's going to be rescheduled in a year. Once it reschedules, expectations that investors will have are just going to have to be lowered dramatically because the opportunity, there's going to be so much competition to get involved in the spaces. The, the other challenge with that, or if, if you wait, is that other states are going to come online and, and there's going to be, especially when you have border states like PA or whatever, you have more competition. So if you stay, you hit a market while it's New York and New Jersey that are fresh and they're new and there's not a lot of competition, now's the time to do it. Yep. Um, beyond that, it is, you know, having realistic expectations of what's going to transpire in the space. So if it doesn't get rescheduled in a year, you have to understand, yeah, that that is a risk that it doesn't get rescheduled. But the reality is there's 24 states plus D.C. that are legal in terms of recreational cannabis. Medical can, medical is, is significantly more than that. It's only a matter of time. It's going to have to be rescheduled because the feds are losing tax dollars on it right now. So, again, this is why it's the, you know, yes, is it is it possible it's not next year? Yes, that's possible. But it's certainly going to be within the next three to five. And otherwise, every state's going to be legal anyway, or most every state. So, again, if you're looking to invest, if you're even considering it, because commercial real estate's kind of sketchy right now, it's an industry worth looking at, but get past the stigmas and ask questions. Do your due diligence. And if you've invested in cannabis before, scrap what you know about it and try to look at it with a fresh perspective, because you may have had a bad experience before. I have friends that lost money in Colorado because they didn't do their due diligence and they just, you know, money walked. So ignore what you've done before. If you've had failures before, this is a different animal. This is a different time. This is truly, if you're in New York and New Jersey specifically, this is truly a once in a lifetime opportunity. And I think also, you know, as much as I wish we were earlier to the legalization party, like California or Colorado, you know, those folks had to deal with the crap that we're dealing with now and 280E and this discrepancy between state and federal for many years at this point. Right. There's a chance that, you know, people like me who may find out in a month or two that we get a license and maybe operational in a year that we may never have to deal with it. 
we may be able to to bypass a lot of the headache and a lot of the crap that these, you know, other legal market operators who got in long before New York had to deal with for many, many years. So it truly is a really awesome opportunity to get in because you can get in while the returns from an investment perspective are still high. And the, the timeline at which this financial and federal state discrepancy headache, there's a light at the end of the tunnel, right? That's coming. Is it this year or next year? Maybe is it the year after that? I don't know, but it's, per, I can almost guarantee over 95% my per, that in the next three years, likely in the next year that that's, there's going to be a huge shift in scheduling with cannabis, which makes this industry a lot more fun and a lot less scary to play in. Um, but like you said, once that happens, it's not the returns and in, in the, in the, you know, that value that investors are seeking is not going to be as sexy as it is now. So like you said, strike while the iron is hot and it's yep. very hot right now. And there's going to be a whole lot of novices, 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 novi. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Who, you know, when it gets rescheduled, there's going to be a lot of people jumping into the space wanting to invest because it's just, it's going to be the new thing and they're not going to be educated about it and they're just going to throw money at it. So that's who you're going to be competing with. So the people that can invest now at the level they need, the investment dollars are needed. And if they do the due diligence, I mean, they're set to make, the returns can be ridiculous. And I'm not talking 100% returns, but the reality is a whole lot better than anything else in the marketplace right now. Yeah. And I get to your point. There's a light at the end of the tunnel. The, the regulatory tax penalties right now, in essence, aren't going to exist when it's rescheduled. Will there be compliance issues? There's always going to be compliance issues. There's always going to be compliance headaches. But at the end of the day, if, if you're confident in the team that you invested in, that's not going to be an issue. I agree with you. I think the time is now. Um, to all you investors, good luck. To all you applicants and licensees, good luck. Um, it's, I'm, I'm really excited to see how this, our industry, our New York industry is going to, is going to evolve over the next couple of years. Obviously it's been a, a bit of a headache and a, a cluster muck, uh, in the last year and a half, especially with the lawsuits and just kind of a, a, a flopped rollout. Um, but with the rest of the industry coming online and, you know, the, the end of 280E and schedule one, um, scheduling, uh, the end of that on the horizon, I really do think that we're going to, we're going to see this industry go to zero to 60, um, in the next year or two. So Greg, thanks again for, for coming on the show. I know it's been a while. Um, this is a really fun series to do again. This is our high stakes, the green rush of cannabis investing series, uh, with Greg Procton and myself, Steve Vanderwall. If you are an investor and you have any questions and, or maybe you want to talk about a project or just get any more information, Greg, where can, uh, where can people find you? Um, my website's currently under development, so LinkedIn would be the best spot. Or I can be emailed at greg at the cgllc.com. Okay, and I'll put that in the show notes, all your contact awesome. information Thank so you. people can find you. Well, thanks again, everybody. Uh, more episodes of Cannabis Cum Laude to come. I took a little bit of a, a six-month, it's been six months already? Six-month hiatus. Had some stuff going on in my personal life. I got hitched. Some new hardware. Shout out to my beautiful wife. I love you. Um, also been, you know, knee deep in uh, the application process and all that. So uh, I took a little bit of a step back from some things, but really excited for to get back in the studio with a good friend of mine, somebody who I really respect. And uh, I hope this provided a ton of value. So again, reach out to, if you have any questions 
and we'll see you next time. Thanks to our friends here at Rockbox Recording and Production in Rochester, New York. They are a full professional podcast and video studio designed by a radio guy for podcasters. Audio, video, voiceovers, editing, whatever. Mouth off at Rockbox at rockbox.com. You can follow Cannabis Cum Laude on LinkedIn and all other social media platforms, as well as Cannabuzz. And if you'd like to help support the show, search up Cannabis Cum Laude on Patreon. And of course, all of those links are in the show notes. Thanks for watching and listening.